Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Before we begin, we want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 30th of July. It's called The Science of Sin by Jack Lewis. He's a neurobiologist, author and broadcaster. Val, what kind of sin is he going to talk about? All of them, uh, coffee, cake, fast food, all the things that tempt us. It can feel like a constant battle to stay away from the temptations we know we shouldn't give into. But where exactly do those urges come from? If we know we shouldn't do something for the sake of our health, our finances or our reputation, why is it often so very hard to do the right thing? Jack Lewis will bring together the latest findings from neuroscience to shed light on temptation, where it comes from, how to resist it, and why we all tend to succumb from time to time. It's a live online event on Thursday the 30th of July. Go to newscientist.com slash events to find out more. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly, your essential guide to the week's happenings in science. I'm Rowan Hooper, I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Valerie Jimison, Creative Director for New Scientist Events. Coming up on this week's show, we've got a preview of a big new mission to Mars that's about to launch, and we've got a genetic analysis for smallpox vaccination during the American Civil War, which has some interesting implications for the coronavirus crisis. We'll also be hearing about the first observation of a quadruple helix of DNA in healthy human cells, and about a beetle that can digest plastic. But first, you'd think that by now we know pretty well what's in our food, right? You'd think... But you'd be wrong. Graham, you've written the cover story exposing the massive lack of understanding around what's in our food. I have, yeah. And it's it's not that we know nothing. I mean, obviously, the major macronutrients, you know, proteins, fats, carbs, they're thoroughly documented. And there's also a pretty well-known supporting cast of micronutrients, the minerals, vitamins, other biochemicals, uh, sometimes present only in very small quantities, but they can still have profound effects on our health. Now, the standard source of information on this kind of complex biochemical soup is called the U.S. National Nutrient Database for Standard Reference. And it's maintained That's by... That's a mouthful. <laughs> we'll just call it the Standard Reference Database from now on. Um, so it contains information on the composition of literally hundreds of thousands of foods broken down into 188 different nutritional components. Now, 188 sounds a lot but we're starting to realise that this is really just the tip of the iceberg, or you might say the tip of the iceberg lettuce. (laughs) Anyway, let's talk about lettuce. So if you look at the nutrient database entry for iceberg lettuce, it says it contains 11 components. That's mostly fibre, vitamins and minerals. And that seems kind of plausible because lettuce is hardly the world's most complex food stuff. But if you consult another more comprehensive food database, the list runs to more than 4,000 biochemicals. Now, that database is called FoodDB, and it's an attempt to kind of fully characterise the biochemicals in food. And what the people who run that database are finding is that food is vastly, mind-bogglingly more complex than the standard reference database 
says it is. And I'll give you another example. Uh, garlic, obviously much more complex than iceberg. And the standard database says it's got 67 nutrients in it. But FoodDB says 2,306. Right. So are those most of those like in tiny trace amounts, like only a few molecules of, of some chemical? Well, some are, but there are also some pretty glaring omissions in the standard database. So if you look at garlic in the database, it doesn't include this kind of smelly sulfurous compound called allin. Uh, and when you crush garlic, that's oxidized to allicin. And that's one of the quintessential flavor components of garlic. And it almost certainly has health benefits. But it's not in the standard reference database on foodstuffs, so there's quite a lot missing in that database. You know, and even that 2,306 is likely to be an underestimate because new compounds are being added to FoodDB all the time. And all told, FoodDB contains something like 70,000 compounds that are in our food. Uh, most of them are naturally occurring. Almost all of them are untested. We don't know what they do to our health. So given that the standard database only contains 188 compounds, it turns out that we only keep track of less than 1% of the biochemicals in our diet. Well, go on then. What do they call the other 99.9%? Well, you probably can guess it's been called nutritional dark matter. And at yeah. first, <laughs> at first, I thought that was kind of a nasty outbreak of physics envy because, you know, we all know that dark matter is the 85% or so value, correct me if I'm wrong, of solid stuff that physicists know is out there but can't see and don't know what it is. Uh, and life sciences seem inordinately keen to kind of jump on this dark bandwagon. So we've had the dark matter of genetics, we've got the dark matter of immunology, and now, of course, the dark matter of nutrition. But it turns out that the scientists who coined this are actually physicists, uh, and they're using network analysis tools to look beyond what nutrition science has traditionally looked at to kind of fully map the complexity of the food. So, yeah, not physics envy. Does it really matter? Because isn't it most of it in tiny amounts, most of this dark matter? So it's, you know, irrelevant. Some are, but we can't actually bank on that because even if you look at the standard database, the concentration of nutrients in there spans about nine orders of magnitude. Some are going to be in kind of gram quantities, but some are quantified down to micrograms per hundred grams of foodstuff, which is concentrations of less than, let me just get this right, 0.00001%. Now, that's obviously a tiny quantity, but concentration is not the key factor when it comes to biological activity. So vitamin E for example, occurs at kind of a microgram levels per 100 gram of food. But its absence in our diet has serious health consequences. So it's not true that just because something's at low concentration, it doesn't have an effect on health. So, you know, let's go back to garlic. So some of its dark nutrients are probably at least partly responsible for the health benefits of the Mediterranean diet, because to put it quite simply, they neutralize some of the bad compounds in red meat. So if you eat garlic and red meat together, you get the benefits of the red meat, but you don't get the disadvantages of it. And actually, there's likely to be an awful lot more in garlic that affects our health. So when the scientists looked at the food DB entry for garlic and compared it to another massive database called a comparative toxicogenomics database, which is kind of a comprehensive database of all the ways that chemicals interact with health, they discovered another 574 compounds in garlic that probably impact our health in ways that we don't understand. All right. So it's starting to feel like um, nutritional science is getting really quantified. You know, it's getting its science amped up a lot. Yeah. And it needs to because, you know, nutritional science is notoriously 
poor at predicting and understanding the health consequences of food. You know, it produces inconsistent and irreproducible results. And, you know, this is familiar to anyone who tries to keep up with nutrition advice. You know, the old cliche is that one week red wine is good for you and the next week it's bad. You know, ditto red meat and eggs and saturated fat and so on. And it might be that these vast tracts of uncharted chemical complexity are the reason for that. But if we if we don't know what's in our food and drink, how can we be expected to be able to understand the health effects properly? Well, yeah, I mean, that's exactly the problem. And then, of course, there's the complexity of the human digestive system to add on top of that, especially the microbiome, because a lot of these dark biochemicals are probably being converted into even darker biochemicals by the action of microbes in our, in our gut. So, Graham, what can be done well, you'll be pleased to hear that there is a massive effort underway to fully characterise this dark matter. Um, it will probably take years, but we really need to do this to put nutritional science on a more firm scientific footing. Because, you know, we say we are what we eat, but then we don't really know what we are. Now it's time for Molecule of the Week, our regular look at some cool bit of chemistry. Rowan, what have you got? Well, this is about a new form of perhaps the most famous molecule in the world, DNA. As you know, DNA is the genetic material which carries all the information in our cells, and it's shaped as a double helix of nucleic acids. Yes, this is the famous Watson-Crick double helix, although of course there were several others who don't get enough credit for discovering the structure of DNA, notably Rosalind Franklin. Yeah, and she just turned up on a new 50 pence piece this week because uh, it's 100 years since her birth. Yeah, so the discovery of the double helix was one of the most consequential discoveries of the last century in all of science. Um, And it's become so iconic that it was totally startling to me to find that there's a quadruple stranded form that exists in healthy human cells. I knew that chemists muck around and make different forms of DNA and, and Rosalind Franklin actually discovered one form But this is the first time this quadruple form has been found in in healthy human cells, so our cells make it naturally. So what does it do and and why do they make it? I spoke with Marco D'Antonio, he's the scientist at Imperial College London who's behind this research, and he pointed out that although we know exactly what DNA does, in that the structure of the base pairs on the strand spells out the instructions to make proteins we're less clear on how the cell knows where to express genes and how much protein to make. Now, I remember the biochemistry textbooks that show the DNA unravelling like a zip and the ribosome reading off the information. Right. So what Marco is suggesting is that this four-stranded structure forms in DNA to hold the molecule open and facilitate the reading of the genetic code and the production of the proteins. And it may also influence the amount of each protein that gets made. Uh, so it's a, it's a temporary structure that forms to open up the DNA. That, that's what they suspect. And so as we know, there's four different chemical bases that make up the double helix, adenine, guanine, thymine and cytosine, and they're complementary to each other so that guanine bonds to cytosine and adenine bonds to thymine. But it turns out that guanine can also bond to itself in this four-way structure to make a square. Um, And these structures have been seen before in cancer cells, but not in healthy living human cells. And Marco D'Antonio says that this forces us to rethink the biology of DNA. Cool, that's that's a big statement. Yeah, I mean, I think we've been distracted by the success and the beauty of the Watson-Crick model of the double helix. And it turns out there's 
mounting evidence that DNA is is not a fixed structure or shape, and these these other forms of it. There's a, basically there's a lot we still have to learn about the functions of other kinds of DNA structures. This quadruple structure seems to be it does seem to be enriched in certain cancers. Um, and you might imagine the helix opening up to get copied, and if it opens up too much, it might over-proliferate, and this might be a factor in cancer growth. And to go back to Rosalind Franklin, I mean, as you mentioned, Rowan, it's 100 years since her birth this week, um, and I've been reading how much more stuff uh, she did than the DNA work. She worked on the science of coal and carbon, first of all, and then went on to viruses that cause plant and human diseases. She, she was so much more than the wrong heroine of DNA. Time out, we want to remind you about the bargain offer available to you as a listener to our podcast. You can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist magazine using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of stuff available to subscribers. Yeah, there's tons of stuff there. Videos, interviews and an archive of unparalleled treasures. POD20 at checkout on newscientist.com gets you your bargain. Now, this week, China launched their first mission to Mars, and we've got another big space launch coming next week. It's NASA's latest mission to Mars. It's called Mars 2020, and if it all goes to plan, it will send a lander called Perseverance to touch down on the surface on the 18th of February 2021. Uh, Right, so there's already eight landers on the Martian surface. How's this one different, Val? Well, I think we're all interested in the question, is there life on Mars? Um, Well, the next best thing, was there ever life on Mars? Um, Today, Mars is a cold, dry and desolate world, but geological features already indicate that Mars was very different in its early history with rivers and lakes. And we know that from Earth, wherever there's water, there tends to be life. Now, previous missions have looked for signs of life that Mars was habitable, meaning an environment capable of supporting life. Yeah, and obviously that's very different from saying that life did exist, even if there was water, liquid water there. Yeah, that's right. So Perseverance is tasked with trying to answer that question. Its mission is to look for signs of ancient microbial life. It's going to land in a crater that's thought to have been a lake three and a half billion years ago. And Mars geologists think that a river flowed into this crater, which is called Jezero, and deposited sediments packed with carbonate minerals and clay. And on Earth, these clays and minerals help preserve signs of ancient life. Right, so is Perseverance basically a fossil hunter? What's the dream outcome here? Well, it's tricky. So Perseverance is jam-packed with scientific instruments. But the scientists admit that even this, its most sophisticated rover, even with a dream outcome, it's not going to be able to say that life definitely did exist. Now, you remember the mantra that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Hmm. Uh, So instead, what Perseverance is going to do is use its instruments to identify promising spots where life could have existed. And then it's going to cut cores of rock about the size of a piece of chalk. Uh, It's then going to place those uh, rock samples into tubes. There's going to be about 43 of them, seal them up and leave them in a safe place on Mars for a future mission to come and collect them and bring them back to Earth. I used to get quite frustrated about NASA that they weren't sending more direct sort of life detection experiments to Mars. 
And, you know, even this mission, which is really cool, it's it's looking for past life. Um, and I couldn't understand why NASA was so averse to looking for life. But the reason is that detecting life is much more difficult than you might expect. It's No one can agree on what would constitute evidence for life. So as you say, they need to do a sample return mission to bring these rocks back and examine them on Earth for amino acids, DNA, microfossils, and all the things that might convince us that life was there. Although there is a European Space Agency rover that will look for signs of current life, but its launch has been delayed until 2022. And the European rover is actually named after Rosalind Franklin, who, you know, let's mention her again for a second time. Yeah. Um, Okay, back to the NASA rover, though. Um, Tell us more about that. Well, Perseverance has got a lot in common with the Curiosity rover, uh, you might remember, that uh, landed in 2012. So from the outside, it looks very similar. It's about the size of a Mini Cooper. It weighs just over a tonne and it has this, you know, fantastic robot arm. Um, And there are seven main state-of-the-art scientific instruments on board that uh, are tasked with studying the climate and weather on Mars and its geology, looking for evidence of rocks that formed in water. Right, so we can look forward to some more fantastic images coming back from loads of cameras on there. There are cameras aplenty, yep, 19 cameras, so expect more stunning images from Mars. Perseverance has also got microphones on board too, and one of them will be able to capture the sound of the lander hurtling through the Martian atmosphere towards the surface. It's quite a perilous journey. Uh, I, so I saw it's got its own Twitter account, at NASA Persevere. I can just imagine it's going to be tweeting as it's going through the seven minutes of terror thing with the parachutes opening and it's going through the atmosphere. Yeah, and another cool thing about Perseverance, I think is fantastic, is going to carry the first helicopter to fly on another planet. Wow. So it's called Ingenuity. It's the size of a tissue box and it weighs a couple of kilograms. Now, it's very much a technology demonstrator, so we don't expect it to do a lot of science. It's really just setting out to prove the concept that we can build an aircraft that can fly by itself and in a very different atmosphere. Um, Mars's atmosphere is much less dense than ours, uh, so the helicopter blades have to be larger and spin much, much faster than they would on Earth. Yeah, this is a really cool bit of kit. And and having a helicopter allows you to get a totally different view of the planet's surface and travel much further across it. Exactly. And, and think back to NASA's Opportunity rover, which landed in 2004. Now, it operated for 15 years, which was way, way longer than the original mission had planned. Um, in that time, it travelled 45 kilometres. Imagine what a helicopter could do. Yeah. Um, the Opportunity rover, it has to be called the Plucky rover. It's it's mandated that you have to call it the Plucky rover whenever we mention it. Um, Definitely. Is there there anything here that could prepare the way for humans to land on Mars? Well, more proof of concept experiments here. There is an instrument that will produce oxygen from the carbon dioxide in Mars's atmosphere. And that will show whether we can make oxygen for humans to breathe or to use as rocket fuel in the future. Uh, And there's another package of instruments that will study the descent and landing in much, much more detail and will help future engineers design landing craft that can protect a human crew from that really perilous and terrifying journey to the uh, surface of Mars. So Mars 2020 is scheduled to launch on 30th of July. Uh, Look out for the preview in next week's issue of the magazine. 
Now it's time for Life Farm of the Week. It's our celebration of newsworthy organisms. What is it this week, Rowan? Uh, this week it's a beetle that can eat and digest polystyrene. Uh, scientists in South Korea have discovered that this beetle, um, or actually it's the larvae of the beetle, um, can manage to survive only on a diet of expanded polystyrene. This is the stuff that makes up drink cups and boxes, which is clogging up landfill and polluting oceans because it doesn't biodegrade. Right, and we don't know, or we didn't know, of anything that could break it down. So what is it about these beetles? The larvae normally feed on rotten wood, which contains cellulose and lignin molecules that have a similar structure to polystyrene. And they've got bacteria in their guts that converts the polystyrene, the long polystyrene molecules, into carbon dioxide um, and into small chemical fragments that are basically excreted out. So we could collect tonnes of polystyrene and feed it to beetle larvae? Well, maybe. Um, you know, there are some other beetles, that, uh, including the famous Tenebrio molitor. Um, that's, if you're an entomologist, it's a famous animal anyway. So why is it so famous? Um, well, you know, it's, in, it's in, studied in insect labs all over the world. It's, it's a common pest and it's larvae and mealworms. They're used for food and fish bait. Um, but the, these larvae, these mealworms, can chew up and digest polystyrene as well. Um, but none of them can do it in huge amounts. So it might be better to let the bacteria do it directly. And that's what the Korean scientists are looking at now. So we've heard quite a bit recently about insects coming to save us, haven't we? Yes, insects are great at recycling things and converting them into things we can use, like food. We ate a lot of them in the office last year when, when we had an office um, or when we used to attend an office. Um, mealworms are used for a lot of human food and black soldier flies are a very exciting insect from a digesting waste and a recycling point of view. We had a big story on this last year, which I'll tweet at New Scientist Pod. But what really stuck into my head after that story was the, this factoid about food waste and that if food waste was a country, it would be the world's third biggest emitter, only behind the US and, and China. Mm, but I, I guess we wouldn't want to eat the insects that have processed as polystyrene, would we? Probably not, um, though we might feed them to animals. But another idea is to find applications for the chemical fragments that are excreted by the larvae when they digest the polystyrene. Um, you might process the droppings into chemicals or use it as soil fertilisers, soil conditioners. Next up, there's been some good news this week on the coronavirus vaccine. Positive results on the vaccine trials from China and from a trial in Oxford. Yeah, the vaccine developed by the University of Oxford and AstraZeneca is apparently safe and it activates an immune response in people. This is according to preliminary results from trials involving 1,077 volunteers. Yeah, and the UK government has already put in an order for 90 million doses. Yeah, I, I did wonder if that wasn't a bit too soon, but you know, presumably there's a get-out clause if the thing turns out to be not as good as, as hoped, although it does look promising. Um, and there's another paper in The Lancet this week showing similar immune activation with a Chinese vaccine. Yeah, but there's also some research suggesting that people who've had the virus very mildly don't produce uh, prolonged immunity. Uh, so there's still some doubt over whether the vaccines are going to work. Yeah, um, it might end up that we're looking at vaccination with boosters to keep up immunity. That's what they've suggested. Um, they've actually already been trying that in the Oxford trial. Uh, as Jeremy Farrar He's head of the Wellcome Trust. As he said this week, um, this is a human endemic infection and it's going to be with us for years and years, decades, he said. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But I was reading about smallpox this week and what the, that virus can tell us about the one affecting us now. 
Yes, in this week's magazine, we've got a story showing that the strains of viruses used for smallpox vaccines in the US during the Civil War have been identified and their genomes have been reconstructed. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, The story really brings home the power of vaccination. Historically, smallpox killed about 30% of the people it infected. Uh, It was eventually eradicated in 1980, but overall it killed tens of millions of people. Mm. So what does this US Civil War study tell us? First of all, we know that smallpox killed about 40% of the Union soldiers who contracted it. The soldiers called it the speckled monster, and they knew that a vaccine could protect them. But was there a vaccine back then? Yeah, there was, but it wasn't the same as how we think of one now. Uh, The smallpox vaccine was made by getting some pus from the smallpox blister of a sick person and injecting it into a healthy child. The child would then get a mild case of the pox um, and become immune. And then their scabs would be used to produce what doctors call a pure vaccine. I guess this depends on getting a lot of children. Right. Um, And... And on the front lines, there weren't children available. So soldiers would try to use the pus and the scabs of their sick comrades to uh, self-inoculate. Um, and that's what we used to do with uh, before we had an actual vaccine. So the soldiers would cut their own arms and add scabs and pus from their, their comrades. And then this got infected. But the worst thing was that it also transferred any other disease from the donor soldier, like syphilis. So it was a real problem. Oh, this is gross. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the, you know, it is gross, but the soldiers' fear of smallpox it just overcame their disgust. And, and to them, the risk was worth taking. Mm, sure. uh, another estimate suggests that in the, the American Civil War, smallpox might have killed two of every three men who died. And the Confederate Medical Department had uh, banned, they recognised this and they banned soldier to soldier inoculation. So going back to the new study, what have they done? Well, they found, um, so scientists found a a Civil War era vaccination kit in a museum collection and sampled it for genetic material. And from that, they could reconstruct bits of old DNA. And they found that the viruses in the kits were strains of the vaccinia virus, which causes cowpox. Vaccinia is only distantly related to variola, and that's the smallpox virus. But it's similar enough to cause, uh, to trigger an immune response, and that protects against smallpox. So the vaccination kit relied on provoking this kind of response. But this is just what Edward Jenner had done, isn't it? As I recall, the the guy who invented vaccination. Yeah, Uh, Jenner was a doctor in Britain who in 1796 observed that milkmaids very rarely contracted smallpox and he suspected that cowpox protected them. And uh, famously, he got pus from milkmaid sores and put it into the skin of an eight-year-old boy later exposed that boy to smallpox and uh, luckily the boy was protected uh, and this this ushered in the age of vaccination this experiment but the soldiers in the american civil war in the 1860s were, were still doing what jenner had done in the previous century yeah so vaccination had gotten better but this is the thing it started to become neglected in the run up to the civil war and uh, and people lost immunity so there were lots of people around with no immunity so what can this tell us if anything about a vaccine for covid-19 well, I think it's just it just highlights how immunity can be stimulated in different ways and by different methods. And it shows just how vital vaccination is, how it needs to be kept up. And if it hadn't been neglected, there wouldn't have been so many cases during the American Civil War. Is there any evidence that smallpox affected the outcome of the Civil War? I tried to look into this. I found some work by a scientist called Joseph Jones. 
who after the war, he calculated that there was one doctor for every 324 soldiers in the South and one for every 133 in the North. So there's this big disparity. It might be that smallpox was a, a bigger problem for the Confederate army. Uh, but I think the other lesson is that smallpox was deeply feared. Um, and if you survived it, you were left really disfigured. And that's why soldiers took these risks to try and avoid it. And I'm not sure there's the same fear for coronavirus. Um, well, you know, it doesn't kill anything like as many people as smallpox. So even apart from the fact that we don't know if we can get a decent vaccine for COVID-19, I think it shows how hard we're going to have to work to get vaccination taken up by everyone. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Graham. And thanks to you for listening. Remember, as a podcast listener, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist by using the code POD20 at checkout. Yes, go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter POD20 at checkout for your discount. Do share your love for our show with your friends and family and spread the word. We're on Twitter at New Scientist Pod and you can email us at podcasts at newscientist.com. Until next time, take care and goodbye. 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 Goodbye.